welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. How does where you live change how you see the world? How does your neighborhood, the groups that you come into contact with, your social geography, impact your perceptions of the world and ultimately your political philosophy, your political ideology, your political identity? My guest today is Professor Ryan Enos. Professor Enos is a social scientist, and he works at the intersection of politics, geography, and psychology. He studies behavior and attitudes in the United States and other countries. He works and teaches at Harvard University at the Department of Government, where he is also professor and director of graduate studies. He's also affiliated with the Institute for Quantitative Social Science, the Center for American Political Studies, Center for Geographical Analysis, the Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, and the PhD program in Government and Social Policy. He's a member of the Evidence in Government and Politics, and also a guest professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. His latest book is The Space Between Us, Social Geography and Politics, which we cover and discuss a lot in this interview. During the course of the interview, I reference a couple of my past interviews. I discussed that we've covered reparations before on the podcast. That was with transitional justice scholar Colleen Murphy, and the title of that episode is Just the Case for Reparations. I also reference that I've discussed some of these issues with conservative commentators on them, and that would be my conversation with Glenn Lowry, titled Race and National Identity. Both of those are in season two, so if you're interested in this conversation, please feel free to go back and check those out. Otherwise, let's just get straight into it. It is my absolute pleasure to present Professor Ryan Enos. I am joined today by Professor Ryan Enos. Professor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Um, so just to get started with, um, how do you, to put it in a cliche, you're at a cocktail party and someone asks what you do. How do you answer that question? Well, I tell them I'm a political scientist and uh, what I do within political science is I'm a political psychologist. And then if they're still interested, I usually tell them that I study how where people live, how that affects what they think about other people, and ultimately how that affects politics. I notice a lot of academics have kind of like a tiered self-resume by interest. It's sort of like, well, I'm X, and if they're still tuned in, there's a Y to it, you know? Right. Usually we don't get to the Y, but, but sometimes that happens. So let's start with your book. I've just finished The Space Between Us. Um, Just to begin with, I had a question about, this is meant as, like, a public-facing book, right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think there's some people in the public that would learn from it, definitely, and I I wrote it so they could read it. Yeah, I mean, I more or less think I understood it, so um, we'll we'll, we'll call that public-facing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so I had a, my first question actually um, was about um, how how self conscious were you in the sort of style and tone of how you were writing because obviously when you're talking about issues of immigration, group identity, race, what have you, you can get a variety of quite extreme emotional reactions from people from like anger to defensiveness to like um, even on sort of my side of the aisle a sort of um, confessional self-flagellatingness from some white people of my god I feel so bad about it. Whereas what I really liked about your book was it had a very calm, descriptive, quite humble, this is what the data seems to show us about this sort of tone to it. And I was wondering if that was like a self-conscious choice or how you settled into it, or if if you decided to approach the public on these, you know, quite difficult issues in a particular presentational style. Yeah, it, it was something I thought a lot about. And I think uh, part of it was, of course, the fact that I wanted to write something that the, the public would read and and make something that was interesting to people beyond just beyond just academics. But I wanted academics to read it, of course, too. And because of that, when I, you want the public to read something, you don't want them to read something that they're going to take and get upset about or get fired up about in a way you don't want. And, and so I, I thought a lot about that when I was writing it. And I think that's one reason I connected a lot to my personal experience, which is something that's a little out of the ordinary for academics. But I said, these are things that I experienced growing up, experiencing issues with immigration and how that affected the town I lived in. And when I was a high school teacher, uh, experiencing things about segregation and how that affected people's lives, trying to integrate that into the story and saying, these are about the, all this data is out there, but it's about real people is something I really consciously tried to do. As, As it turns out, um, it, it, as you mentioned, people can read this and take all kinds of different perspectives on it. So um, there's, uh, you know, people on the left side of the aisle that have said that it was, um, you know, very reinforcing to, to what they, their worldview. And then actually something I didn't expect is you have right wingers out there in the world that have latched onto this and said it, it reinforces their worldview about what they want to do for immigration too, which is something that I, I didn't expect to see out there. But apparently people take what they want from it. Yeah, I mean, as always, um, social science data can kind of be a Rorschach test that often its interpretation says more about you. Staying with this idea of, like, you mentioned making it personal, I remember one bit that jumped out at me in the book is you said, I stereotype people. Like, we all do it, but instead of saying, you all do it, you said, I do it, and you gave the example of, I was on the plane, and I saw someone, I don't even know if they were Muslim, but they had a scarf over their head in a way that seemed to be suggestive of it, and immediately my brain went to a dark place on it. Which I think is, like, so important in talking about these things, because, you know, I don't know all the social science data, but one of the things I've said about racism on this podcast for a long time now is if you want to, you know, as a white guy, if you want to know it's real, you don't it helps to have all the data, but you don't need it. You just need to be introspectively honest about what's in your own head. Sure. I, I absolutely agree with that. And and to tell you the reason I think that uh, experience on the plane was so poignant and why it has stuck with me so much is something that I mentioned in the book is, of course, my, my wife is, is Muslim. Mm. And so as somebody that's not wasn't raised a Muslim myself, I, I probably have way more experience with with Muslims than your typical American. And I, um, you know, there's people I love that are Muslims. The person I love most in the world is a Muslim and I'm mm. around people. 
who have their head covered all the time. And yet it shows you the, the power of context, which is in many ways the point of the book, where I stepped onto an airplane and I saw somebody that I thought was a Muslim. And that particular context changed the way I saw this situation and these negative stereotypes about Muslims on planes were, were brought to mind for me. And so it, it, that, that introspection and then watching the, in that particular instance, watching when she took off her scarf and, and the way her image changed to me. And I thought, oh, this isn't a Muslim. And, it could, and those stereotypes could be cued so easily for me was something that really stuck with me and I think mm. shows our context and about how our own racism can be, can be shaped by context. And, and as you mentioned, when, it, when we introspectively think about that, it, we have instances of this all over the place. You know, many, many of us are non-racist in theory but then you put us in a certain place where we're, for example, where uh, if white people in the United States are non-racist in theory, but they're exposed to African-Americans in a certain place, all of a sudden they start acting differently. And that's mm. racist. It's them reacting to, to people based on where they are and who they're seeing. And, and the lived experience can be very different than the way we often think we are when, before we have introspection about it. One of the ways I often make the argument is um, I try to, you know, we all stereotype, right? And I often try and give an instance which isn't as loaded as race or religion. So, sure. like, there's categories me and my wife have, which are just, like, people we've met, which we consider archetypal for a certain type of person, you know? And we're like, oh, that person, they're like a so-and-so, right? And by that, we're just calling to mind a stereotype. We all do that. And so actually, you just flip it, and it's actually kind of crazy that you wouldn't do that about something like race, because, you know, history and all of that, right? Yeah, well, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, and the, the this is one of the things that makes political psychology and social psychology more more generally very interesting, is we're, we're thinking about how our minds that were built to, to um, be successful in certain situations then um, can become... Uh, unsuccessful in, in the society we currently live in is one way to think about it. So the reason we stereotype is because it makes us successful. It's the way our, our minds, um, they stereotype certain objects because it allows us to use heuristics and to survive in our evolutionary past and things like that. But then because we have groups and we live in this diverse society, we attach those stereotypes to, to groups. And in that sense, this thing we need to survive, this thing that makes us successful, also can turn us into racists. In fact, mm. it makes us racist. And that is a, is a very negative social outcome that comes from something that's just the way our minds are wired. So yeah, we all stereotype all the time. The problem is we, have, we live in these diverse societies, and when we use that in diverse societies, it can has all these negative outcomes like racism. And we stereotype, I'm just taking straight from your book here, we stereotype depending on what primers and circumstances we get. So could you bring in the concept of social geography and how that relates to what we've been talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of social geography is just how people are arranged in the Earth, on the Earth's surface. So who we live around and whether they're segregated from us or integrated from us, whether groups are large or small. And these can be racial groups or religious groups or ethnic groups, linguistic groups, any group you want, really. The most the most salient ones in the American context, of course, are things like race. And the idea is 
it's this social geography that causes us to use these stereotypes in certain ways. So we may not um, think a lot about um, a certain group when we're just out on our own. But then if we come in contact with that group because they live in our city or they live in somewhere in our neighborhood, then those stereotypes are brought to mind. And the size of that group can make the group more or less threatening and make these stereotypes more or less threatening. And that affects our behavior. And it turns out one of the very powerful ones is also just whether that group is separated from us in space, so whether they're segregated. Hmm. And segregation does a lot of things, but it turns out one of the things it does is it affects our psychology. It affects the way we think about these groups and what stereotypes we bring to mind. So if we're segregated from a group, say a white person in the United States is segregated from black people, that that, that fact of segregation causes them to think that those black people are more different from him than they really are. Could we cash out the word segregation? Because obviously we're not talking about sort of like apartheid or separate but equal. What do we mean by segregation in the modern in the modern day? Yeah, well, it can, it, it can mean those things in the modern day. But what I mean, what what I mean by it is what it, in a in a geographic sense. So it just means that when it means that you have two groups, how much they are separated in space. Um, often within a, a, a larger space. So you'll take something like a city and ask how much do the two groups live in live in separate neighborhoods from each other. So for instance, in Boston, I was in Boston for a year, there are black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, right? Yeah, yep, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And one thing that's interesting to think about, of course, is whether this just applies across neighborhoods or whether it can apply across whole cities. So, for example, there's um, you have cities in uh, in you have you have cities in Michigan, for example, that have very large uh, populations from the Middle East now. And whether you could say that city itself is segregated from another from another city in Michigan, or you could say does it apply on a on a very small level? Like if you have a one household that's a white household and another household next to it that's a black household. Are those households segregated from each other? And understanding the, the the scale of segregation is something that's interesting. If I were to try and sum up the, what the or like one of the central theses of the book, it's that segregation without contact or without any mitigating factors makes racism and group prejudices worse. Like bringing two groups together can actually make things worse if they're not interpenetrating each other. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so let's do... Um, it was the Boston experiment, right, with the, sure. the trains? Um, yeah, could right. you Could you cover... Could you cover how you? Because that's just amazing that you actually got to do that to real people. <laughs> could you um, Could you cover that? Yeah, sure. So this, this experiment was taken on something that I refer to in the book. I, I talk about this as the Arizona problem mm. and, and is dealing with this problem that you described of what happens when people come into the same place and they're separated. And the reason for the problem is Arizona, it turns out, that um, Anglo people in Arizona, non-Hispanic people, have very negative attitudes about immigration compared to the rest of the United States. And and one question is, why are they like that? And there's a lot of different explanations we could give. We could say, well, it just might be something in their culture. They just were, you know, raised that way across generations. Or it could be that just a bunch of sort of racist Anglo people happen to live there, or it could be, and this is a very common explanation, it could be that these Anglo people became anti-immigrant when a lot of immigrants came there, and um, and they had they came close together, but were separated into these different communities. And so 
the question is how do we how do we figure this out? How can we how can we um, adjudicate between these different explanations for the Arizona problem? And we might really care about this because the United States and a lot of other countries have similar issues they're dealing with. The United States over time is going to become more like Arizona. It's going to a lot of places that are now mostly Anglo white are going to become more Hispanic. And Boston is one of them. That's why Boston is a relevant place. And we might ask ourselves, are these liberal people in Boston like myself? Are they going to become more anti-immigrant if Boston and the surrounding communities become more heavily Latino over time, like we think they will? So that leads to this experiment, and we wanted to sort this out to ask what happens to these places in the Boston area or anywhere else. So Boston's where we happen to do it. What happens if they become more Latino? And so we tried to figure out an experiment that would simulate this, and we wanted to figure out a way to put people in people's communities and see how they would react when they're in their communities. So the way you might do this if you had, let's say, like unlimited money is you might buy up houses and communities in, let's say, mostly Anglo communities and move Latinos into those communities. But there's lots of reasons you wouldn't want to do that. Um, it might be unethical, first of all. Um, it also might be prohibitively expensive, but there's reasons you wouldn't do that. So we were looking for a way to, um, to try to simulate that process. And what we thought of is what people now refer to as this trains experiment, because we use trains. So um, we, we went to these commuter rail stations out in the Boston area in these largely Anglo-white communities and said, since there are these commuter rail stations, people tend to ride the train the same time every day. And if we took people that looked like immigrants and put them in these train stations, they would think those people had moved into their community. So we'd go out to these train stations really early in the morning, and we'd take two people that were Spanish-speaking, um, Spanish-speaking people that worked for us, as in us, the experimenters, and we had them wait at those train platforms. And they would wait there for several days, and um, we would then see how did that change people's attitudes. So we took people um, before and after we put these Spanish-speaking people that worked for us at these train stations, and we surveyed them, and we got their attitudes about immigration. And then we got their attitudes about immigration after the Spanish speakers were there, and we looked and see how that had changed their attitudes. And the upshot of all of that is what happens is these people that were overwhelmingly liberal out in these communities around Boston, when they had been exposed to people look like people, Spanish speakers moving into their community, they'd been exposed to them for just a few minutes every day, they became more anti-immigrant. They moved in this exclusionary direction, even though they had started as very pro-immigrant people. And so what this showed us was that, that even in places like Boston, where people are liberals, when they're exposed to this new group that they're normally separated from, when they come into their daily lives, that can move them in a way that um, that's a backlash against that group. And so bringing it back to this idea of the Arizona problem, it looks like places like Arizona maybe became very anti-immigrant when a lot of immigrants came into that place. And so we, you know, we wouldn't say it's something about their culture. We'd say it's something about the social geography. And places like Boston need to think then about how they're going to deal with that. Because if we want to live in a society where people get along and we're not excluding immigrants and things like that, we can't just assume it's a problem for places like Arizona. It's a problem for anywhere as those societies change. Yeah, and there's always this thing, um, I mean, whether it's true or not, who knows, but I think it's just useful to take as axiomatic in the social sciences that all people everywhere are basically running around with the same hardware, if not the same software. We're not fundamentally different, um, no. although we think we are. 
Sure, we're not. I mean, there are questions about what we bring in from things like our family and our background and things like that. And you might say that we're coming in with different cultures or different upbringings, and they might cause us to think certain things about certain people. There's a long strain in social science, of course, that says um, that a lot of people's attitudes and things about race are probably uh, shaped when they're very young. Not necessarily very young, but when they're in their teenage years. And then those are kind of wired with this for the rest of their for the rest of our lives. They don't change that much. And that might, of course, be true. But what something like this Boston experiment showed was it showed that even um, these experiences we bring before in life that can give us certain attitudes about race, which probably all these people in Boston had, they can change when when confronted with the new circumstances, when the social geography changes. And in many ways, that was much like this anecdote we gave back at the beginning of our conversation about me on the airplane. I'm somebody that is a, a racial liberal mm-hmm. and married to a Muslim, and I was con- I was confronted with a cer- certain circumstance, and I had negative stereotypes about Muslims. So you mm-hmm. can understand these racially liberal people about immigration in places like Boston, confronted with certain circumstances, they bring in, they bring in attitudes that they might not have known they had. So this is where you said at the beginning that sort of to your surprise, some of um, the people on the conservative side of the immigration debate um, liked this thesis. That makes total sense to me. Not that I agree with them on um, policy. I don't just to sort of put my cards on the table here. You know, in almost all circumstances, I'm pretty pro-immigration. However, I am also coming from the European context. And in Europe, this idea that we have to manage immigration very carefully, otherwise there'll be a, like, far-right backlash, that's a sort of set of arguments that has a long history for us. Now, personally, I find it somewhat disingenuous, because I think they're they're just using it to arrive at a conclusion that they want to arrive at, which is we don't want immigrants. But there is sort of something to that, right? Like... As we have seen freedom of movement in Europe, I'll just make the devil's advocate, we are now seeing freedom of movement across a continent in a way that we never have before. We're seeing huge numbers of people coming in from refugee crises in Africa and the Middle East, and people are reacting very, very badly to that in a number of countries, in a number of ways that are shaking constitutional orders and maybe even toppling them. Um... And we can be horrified about that, and we should, but the conservative would say, you did do this massively societally destabilizing thing that led to that. Now, I don't, I'll put that back to you. I won't give my own rebuttal to it. Yeah, well, there, there is, um, of course, as you pointed out, some, some truth to what these conservatives in Europe and the United States and, and such might be saying, which is that um, when you have these big changes to the to the geography of a country, to the demographics of a country, it is destabilizing. And we see this over and over and over again. Um, you know, we've seen it w- across the United States history, within the United States, with different groups. You know, in, in the mid-century, it was African-Americans. Now it's Latinos. You go back further than that, it was the Irish, right, coming over that were destabilizing the social order in the, in the United States compared to the non-Irish that were there. And so the, the question that I think that, that 
um, that liberals have to deal with is to say, well, given that this is true, and it is, and something that I point out in the book, and it's not my research, it's other people's research, is that, for example, diverse countries on average have a lot of social ills that homogenous countries don't, you know? So something that political economists have told us is that the reason countries like Sweden and Norway and Finland are so successful compared to countries like, let's say, Zimbabwe, is that Zimbabwe is much more diverse and it can't solve social dilemmas that those countries can because everybody's the same. And, and so the, the thing that liberals have to deal with is say, well, that that's true. And diversity can be socially destabilizing. Social scientists have showed us this, yet we think that good things come from diversity. And this is something a lot of us believe. It's something that I believe personally, and it's something that social science has also shown, that if a country can manage its diversity correctly, it will be more successful because we come up with better ideas through diversity. We come up with stronger outcomes through diversity. We can show this through many different ways. It's a biological truth. It's sort of a social truth that diversity helps us. And as a matter of fact, you know, we just live in a more diverse world now. You know, people can move more freely and countries are going to be more diverse whether we like it or not. Right. And so and perhaps from an ethical perspective, we should welcome that when we live in these rich countries in Western Europe and, and North America. We should welcome that diversity because it means we're spreading the wealth that we've accumulated. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that um, part of this idea that that liberals need to do is figure out how to reconcile those two ideas and say that, you know, the thing that conservative diversity is a good thing. They're not wrong. That is that is destabilizing. And, and ultimately, this is where one of the points about in the book about integration becomes important because the way we mismanage diversity is that we often say we're going to bring people into a country, but we're not truly going to integrate them. We're going to leave them segregated. And that's what leads to this social instability. That's what leads to people not liking each other and not able to solve these problems. And you can see this in Europe. You can see this in the United States. And so where, where I think the place where you meet in the middle is, is to say that we all think that you know this is going to happen, that, that diversity is just a fact we live in now, and we want the best outcome that comes out of that, which can be stronger societies. And so we need to think about how, to, when we get people into societies, not to ghettoize them, not to allow them to be demonized, but to say we're truly going to integrate them into society. Now, that's not an easy thing especially in, in uh, democracies where people make these decisions about where they want to live and who they're going to vote for. And it's easy to it's easy for demagogues like we see in places like the United States and Britain now to appeal to the anti-immigrant sentiments. It's often easier said than done, but that is the goal is integration. Right. And I want to I want to end this interview with integration. Um, but that is always what I say about Europe in that people point to Europe as like a cautionary tale almost of like the dangers of immigration. But the fact is that Europe um, is fucking terrible at integration. I'll speak only <laughs> for like the UK and France. And right. so I've been to Paris a lot. I love Paris. I say I, I need like a cigarette to smoke here or something. Right. But like, I love Paris. It's an amazing city. But my God, I so, so not knowing, right, if you live in a city for a long time, you sort of learn to only walk around in certain neighborhoods, even if you don't know you've learned it, you've learned it. Whereas when, when I'm in Paris, I don't. I just walk around the city and my god it's like being in a fucking apartheid state sometimes like like you'll walk for 10 minutes and suddenly you're in just every aspect of that social geography is different and yeah like if you have a lot of immigrants but have 
almost complete geographical segregation, and then no contact between those groups, plus a history of, you know, colonialism and everything else, yeah, you are going to get some really bad outcomes, and as stupid and as racist and as, like, dumb as the United States can be sometimes, at its best, it handles cultural acclimation very well in a way that Europe doesn't, you know? In the, like, um, we've talked about Muslims, I have quite a few Muslim friends, and, you know, about my age, and their parents' biggest fear for them is not that they would get radicalised by some sort of, you know, Islamist. That's the last thing they would worry about. You know, they may not be rich people, but they've gone to college, they have American friends and so on. Their biggest fear is that the American integrative experience will be so strong that they will forget everything of their heritage, that it will just obliterate any sort of... And in a sense, like, if the balance you're trying to find is hanging on to just some sort of cultural identity, that, that's, that is a better problem to have, right? right? And so when people want to say, you know, oh, we've got to be careful about, you know, Hispanics or whatever in America because we'll turn into Europe, we are not Europe. At our best, we do it a lot better, and we need more of that, essentially, is how I think about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. I, I do think we have to be careful when we look back over history and say just because the United States has been good at integrating in the past that it will be in the future, right? And, right. and there's a lot of things that vary here that could make it go one direction or another. And one thing I point to in the book is I say there's groups in the United States, and this is true in Europe too, that have been very successfully integrated, and there's others that have not. Right. And so. In the United States, most um, most poignantly is African Americans. African Americans have never been successfully integrated into larger society, and and we can you know point to things that could make us quibble with that point. We can say, well, of course we've had a black president, but that doesn't change the fact that we have overwhelming segregation in the United States, and and the outcomes of African Americans are just so much worse than whites, and they have been for 400 years. And so, the the question is why is that group that way? And why have other groups like the Irish we mentioned earlier been so successfully integrated? And we need to look at those things and ask what direction will Hispanics go? Will they will they be integrated into a larger society? And will society start to look a little more Hispanic and Hispanics start to look more at Anglo and everybody will eventually forget the differences, which is sort of what happened to um, was what happened to the Irish, right? Um, you know, it used to be an important thing and it's not anymore. And and we it's important to think about what it is that that led to that kind of successful integration. And in many ways, that could be a whole different conversation. But one thing that is important to, to think about is things like inequality, for example. When, when society, when people are seen to be doing pretty well and they have a lot of opportunity, um, they are much more willing, as far as we can tell, to accept other, other um, to accept people who are different than them and accept newcomers and to sort of spread the wealth around. And one of the problems we're facing in a lot of places right now is that there's this strain on, of course, um, uh, on society from inequality itself. And when you combine that with diversity, we have um, new diversity from immigration. We have a really um, we have a really bad formula for things like you know uh, uh, right wing populism, which is what we're also seeing you know across Europe and, and in the United States. The United States now. And so, you know, one of the questions we have to deal with, of course, is we have to think about things like integration directly and say, how can we have an experience for newcomers that is closer to the experience that some of these groups that have been successfully integrated in the past have been? 
But how can we also ask about things that may not seem as directly related to that, which are things like inequality and, um, you know, solving one of those and not the other is um, probably uh, not the way forward. So perhaps, yeah, certainly I was not meaning to say um, everywhere and always um, the United States has done a good job of integrating people. At its best, I think it's done a very good job. At its worst, it's been terrifyingly backwards, right? Um, so one thing we, we could mention on that is one of the big migration patterns that shapes our politics today is not sort of an external group, it's internal migration. It's the big migration um, you had of uh, black Americans in what, like the middle of the 20th century from the south to northern cities. Um, and well, rather than you're more qualified to give a summary of that than me, could you talk about that briefly in the context of what you just said? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we we often don't think of that as a as a migration. We don't think of the movement of African Americans um, in the 20th century from the South to the rest of the United States as a migration um, in the in the same way we do an international migration. But of course, it was because mm. largely what it was is it was people escaping a um, a bad circumstance for a better circumstance or something they thought was going to be a better circumstance. Part of it was economic opportunity, which during the wo- World War. You, of course, had this huge expansion of, of jobs in many places in the United States, especially during the Second World War. And then during the booming economy that followed the World War, you had this creation of jobs and in these industrial jobs in these cities. And that combination of economic um, opportunity plus escaping the system of Jim Crow apartheid in the South that was there was a great opportunity for African-Americans, as so many of them followed. And it 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 greatly unsettled the the racial demography of the cities in the West and in the North. You know, you can look at the increase in the African-American population in places like Boston and places like Chicago, even places like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, everywhere, any large city in the United States, the, the population of African-Americans just skyrocketed. Now, with that, of course, the proportion of whites went down uh, as well, not just because African-Americans are growing, but because, as it turns out, um, with this opportunity for African-Americans to move there, they escape in the Jim Crow South, they were confronted with a whole new type of racism, which was this racism that people in the North experienced when there are and started to express when their social geography changed hmm. and many of them um you know that were social liberals uh all of a sudden decided well i may be a social liberal but i don't want to actually live around african americans and they hightailed it for the suburbs there was a lot else going on at the time that made that possible but in many ways what that did is it locked in this system of segregation that we now see across the united states where whites more or less, many of them still live in these white suburbs, and the inner cities of the United States are non-white. That changes around the edges here and there, but largely that pattern is, is still there. And in many ways, that has um, led to a lot of these problems in segregation. We, we problems with segregation we've talked about, where it reinforces these negative attitudes that people have about each other. So, one of the arguments of your book, and again, like 
you know, tell me if I'm summarising it incorrectly, is that um, the, the causality runs both ways between um, segregation and exclusionary attitudes. So put simply, it's not that you have segregation and that causes racism, or that you have racism and that causes segregation. It's both and at the same time. And so when you do get two groups brought together, there's a series of collective decisions, either just social decisions or political decisions that you can make of how you manage that diversity. And there's some to do with like greater equality, greater contact that will lead to that being diffused and to more positive outcomes over time. But there's also decisions in terms of living close but separate um, that will not only lock it in, but get into a negative feedback loop where more segregation leads to more racism, leads to more segregation, leads to more racism. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And it's very well said, because the idea of the feedback loop is key. And this idea of thinking about where people can live and how we can try to manage that is key as well. Because, of course, in many ways, in a, you know, in a, in a liberal, and I mean that with a small L society, we don't tell people what to think, right? We can try to influence it through schools and things like that, but we can't tell people not to be a racist. But one thing we can do, and the state is accepted as having a big role on, is um, a big role in, I should say, is is um, helping to shape where people live. We do things like we have zoning laws about what type of housing you can build. Um, we encourage people to buy certain things, especially in the United States. We encourage people to buy homes through tax breaks and things like that. We build certain types of housing. We influence this in many different ways. And certainly um, the state can influence whether or not people that come into a society, whether they're well integrated residentially with people that already live there. And one of the mistakes that perhaps the United States made and is still paying the price for this is in the mid 20th century when the social geography changed so rapidly because African Americans were moving into these cities in the North and West is it did not try to manage that integration. It simply said, we have a set of policies that's gonna um, not only maybe allow, but encourage whites to flee away from this new population mm. rather than saying, we're gonna encourage people to try to live together together and let them learn to, to overcome this initial racism they had, had they made that decision, you know, we might be living in a very different society now. Let me, let me give you a narrative which I think runs parallel to this set of arguments, but isn't exactly the same as them. So there's been a lot of talk recently on the left about reparations, which I guess I'm sort of agnostic, leaning towards somewhat pro, but I feel like I just don't have enough data, you know? And their argument about redlining is more just in terms of wealth accumulation than social geography. So it's something like white people in the 50s and 60s were given a lot of government assistance to buy homes, and that becomes a form of intergenerational wealth. Black people over the past 70 years or whatever have been renting, and I guess not only have they been renting, but the chances of them not being married are higher, so it's one person, one rent, and a much greater percentage of their wealth has been going to the landlord, i.e. a white person. Therefore, you see today the net household wealth is like 10 grand for black people, black families, and 100 grand for white families. And right. it's just a very straight line economic argument towards explaining the wealth gap. I mean, that seems plausible to me, but like I'm not 
all up in the numbers or anything. Um, do, do you think that narrative is broadly right, and how would it mesh with the social geography argument? Yeah, I mean, I think it is broadly right, and there's some there's some pretty good social science evidence about this, um, looking at things that we might call natural experiments around where the decisions to, to redline areas, where the decisions to allow um, for government loans for homes were made, how those have carried on through history. And you can see a very direct line there that, that looks like those really affected intergenerational wealth. I, I think that the element that I would add on Onto that, that from a certain perspective would argue for something like reparations, perhaps, um, is that, of course, one of the um, consequences of these decisions like redlining was um, to lock in place that segregation in many ways, not only because you had things like a, a divergent wealth between whites and blacks, but it also meant that these groups were separated. And that had two consequences that are, again, reinforcing. One is it caused this, um, this animosity um, between groups and allowed, for example, whites to play on their negative stereotypes and to, use, and to have these reinforced, and then to have those whites that were in power to make a lot of make a lot of consequential decisions, and this is the other side of, of this coin, which is to say that it allowed for unequal things like government attention, it allowed for unequal policing, and that it allowed for um, blatantly racist policing in some areas, it allowed for unequal um, expenditures on things like education, infrastructure, and all these things that reinforced this cycle of poverty and the cycle of a lack of wealth accumulation for large large portions of African-American communities, um, especially those ones that were still living in these places that were redlined over 60 years ago. So one more question on this, just because um, I've spent some amount of time um, with black conservatives. Um, I had a discussion with Jet Glenn Lowry, who I very much disagree with, but he's quite a nice guy. And their argument is, um, yes, that is all true. But you also have to take into account um, cultural differences that lead to differential outcomes. So they'll point to facts like black families will, of the same income level, will invest, say, much less on tutoring for their children versus Asian families, stuff like that, right? Um, or black families tend to invest a much higher percentage of their income on um, luxury goods like cars or jewelry or so on. Now, my counter-argument, I wasn't fluent enough in the data, but my counter-argument was a moral one, which is, even accepting that might be true, um, it doesn't get you out of the moral hook for something like reparations, because even if there are those cultural differences, they came from somewhere. And they came from history, which is, like, racist as all shit, right? So you're still in a place where the fact that there is a difference is ultimately the moral culpability of white people. It's just the mechanism is different. But I wanted to ask you, because I'm not necessarily fluent enough on all the data, is that, does the, is that even necessarily true on an empirical basis? I mean, you can grant that something like cultural differences exist, but I'd sort of be surprised if it was more than, I don't know, 10% of explaining the racial wealth gap or something like that. Yeah, well, it, it's it's hard to put any kind of a number on 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 something like a cultural difference and how much that is going to explain something like wealth differences, um, and, and I would uh, I, I would not even want to hazard to do so. I don't think yeah. there's. 
way that that can be captured empirically. I, I do want, think that one of the very important things to add to that discussion, though, is um, it's it, it, that groups adopt certain cultures because they are successful for the situation they're put in. Right. Right? And so, um, you know, it's easy for, for, for example, from the perspective of white society to look at certain examples in, in African-American culture and, and wag the finger and say, well, that's not successful. You should be spending more money on tutoring for your kids, for example. But, of course, there's a reason that African-Americans have chosen that perspective because the perspective we, we are chosen that, that strategy, that way of doing things, because the perspective we should have, of course, is that everybody loves their kids and they want mm. their kids to be successful, too. But they have to make decisions about what is going to make them successful. And there's a lot of research on this, models from economics and from sociology and political science and a lot of places that say, why do certain groups have different cultures? And often it's because they're successful in the, in the situation they're in. It could be that the sort of investment in tutoring in a lot of African-American neighborhoods and a lot of African-American societies just doesn't pay off because mm. there, for example, are um, less returns to things like education and everybody knows it because of things like discrimination, mm. where even two, and we know this for a fact, you can see this in experiments, that an equally well-educated white person and an equally well-educated black person, the, um, the white person is gonna get the job more often. And it should be, in reality, it should be 50-50. You know, these types of things shouldn't be happening, but that's because of discrimination. Mm. And you lock that in over years and that return to tutoring is less for black people. Mm. And that sort of decision, if you will, to not do as much tutoring, assuming that's true. I haven't seen that study, but let's take it to be true. Assuming they're not doing as much. much yeah, I, I will say I'm just repeating what's been yeah. told to me. I'm not vouching for it. Sure. But let's let's say that's true. It could be that 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 tutoring um, is because there's just not as much there's not as much of a return to it, and therefore, in in a certain sense, it's a rational strategy that's that's been adopted. And so, I think in many ways, that sort of starting point to say why have groups adopted these strategies, and are they because of the situation that society put them in, um, is, is an important one. Is an important one to keep in mind. I think you know your point that 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 culture somehow comes from um it, we have to consider the moral perspective when we consider cultural differences that that's a that's a very important a, a point we can't escape that we're very morally culpable for the different cultures that groups adopt yeah and it, you could even take it one step further and say that i mean god knows if this statistic is right but let's just say that it is that um you know increased investment in tutoring could do a lot for black people today it's almost certainly the case that it wouldn't have done a lot for their parents growing up 30 40 years ago and they've just taken that mindset from them but then again, you don't, because what people want to do with this argument is sort of let white people off the moral hook. And right. even, I can grant you all the premises and all the conclusions, but you're still left in a scenario where black people are doing less well because of stuff white people did. And that's the brick people want to get out from under. And I don't, I don't see, um, so Orlando Patterson puts it really nicely. He says, um, you know, black people are certainly no worse than white people, but they're not supermen. And only supermen could endure what black people have endured without some scars. And, yeah, and that surely has to be it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's well put. And I think I would even, I, I, would, I would put something that I would consider a, a slight change to that, though, which I think is an, an important point, um, is in many ways, it's not as much what 
white people did, although certainly all these people that were doing it were white. I think the moral clarity becomes even clearer, though, when you say it's something that the state did. Right. And that state still, ex still exists, and these cities still exist. And it was a state, white people running the state. We shouldn't act like that wasn't true. Hmm. But white people running the state that were making these decisions about redlining and were making these decisions about discriminating across schools and things like that. And that state still exists. And, mm -hmm. and, and in many ways, it's much easier to think of things like cities and think of things like countries having a moral responsibility for their past actions, because it's not some amorphous group like white people did that. Because, of course, mm -hmm. a white person might say, like, well, I didn't do that. I wasn't alive or something like that. But your country was right, mm. and your country did something that that should have an histor have a historical memory about it because countries are are real entities. I mean, you know, to to your point, the the example that I often think about was when, and I talk about this in my book, is when I was a high school teacher in Chicago and teaching um, African American students. There would often be in this school that was 100% African American on the south side of Chicago, there would be a discussion that you would often hear among teachers about why do parents not care more about their children's education? Why are they not forcing them to go to school? Why are they not watching their homework and things like that? And of course, a lot of parents were, but many weren't. And my response to that often was, well, the same school, a lot of them had literally gone to the same school, failed them. Right. They didn't see any return to going to the school. They saw something that didn't serve them well, that they um, got zero benefit from the education from. And so why what is their motive to then uh, to then say that their children should spend so much time investing in the school? It just doesn't make any sense to them. And if you think about it, it was the same city, the same educational system that had made that decision intergenerationally to keep this bad school operating, to keep sending kids through the same system. Because of the consequence of where they lived and decisions they had made about segregating these groups generations beforehand, and I think when you when you draw that thread across that it was the same system that made these decisions over and over again and had benefited one group at the for at the expense of another group that was locked away in these underperforming schools, it makes the idea of something like reparations much more clear in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, so so. Moving from segregation to integration, then, because, like, you know, I say, oh, I'm not sure about where. No, that's sort of a white liberal couching. I'm, I'm for reparations, but, like, I, I don't think it would. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not against a one time cash payment, but I think we can say pretty clearly that wouldn't solve every racial problem in America. It wouldn't just go away, right? So, my perspective on this which has partially been informed by social science but is more just sort of a moral claim is pro-integration which i one thing i worry about is that that argument isn't being made clearly there's a sort of anti-discrimination argument but not necessarily on the positive side a pro-integration argument now i know in the book you were a bit cautious about saying like contact broadly defined is the sort of catch-all to cure all ills. But I'm not wrong in saying that there's a very tight correlation between, like, relationships people have with sort of, quote-unquote, the out-group, you know, from, like, talking to your barista to, like, all the way up to, like, marrying someone from that group, and the absence of out-group hostility, right? Like, that's a well-confirmed thing in social science. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the details are something that people can argue about, and we actively do. <laughs> but but the the idea that contact is related to these things is is very correct. 
Um, so to me from that, I guess you could quibble about the causality, but to me, you would want to start making society. That, that implies that if, you know, getting quote-unquote beyond racism, whatever that means, is a goal that you have, you want to start making social decisions anywhere from, like, where you shop or eat or send your kids to school, all the way up to, like, decisions about housing policy, about education policy. You want to start making hiring policy in the workplace. It doesn't even have to be political, you know? Um, You want to start making all those decisions with an eye towards... Diversity can sometimes be... With an eye towards integration, right? Like, that, then that becomes a sort of moral imperative. Yeah, because it's not just diversity. It is integration. It's giving people a chance for contact to people. It doesn't have to be deep contact, but it's an opportunity to interact with each other, right? Not just to say that we're going to have a city that's diverse, but everybody from one group lives on one side and everybody from another group lives on another side, that you're going to say people are going to come together in workplaces or going to come together in, in places where they socialize and all those things like that. The difficulty, of course, and this is true of many things in society is it's easier said than done, of course. And this is um, true in a society with like the United States, for example, that has a somewhat weak state, if you will, that we're not into um, strongly forcing people to do things is that um, we've tried integration before uh, and we still sort of actively try it. But we've always done it in a in a rather uh, in a in a rather weak way. So, um, you know, one of the most forceful examples was in the 1960s and 70s, even leading the 80s, that the United States said we are going to bus children around um, to different neighborhood, uh, different schools to integrate schools, and that was very well intended, and it had a lot of good consequences to it. Um, then eventually, of course, the United States even turned its back on that. We don't even really do that anymore. But it did used to do that. And um, but the argument I make often to people is I say, well, what was the real um, cause? What, what did that really lead to? Well, what it led to was you had children that would come together for a short amount of time and, uh, you know, six hours a day or so. And then they would go back to these same segregated neighborhoods. And it's really hard to say that I'm going to have positive attitudes about groups when most of my existence is spent in this time where I'm starkly segregated from those other groups. It, it leaves a situation where people are just segregated most of the time and then closely together for a short time. And in many ways, that's the, the worst situation you could want. to say we're going to have true integration where we're going to start moving people into neighborhoods and say we're going to think about how we can have active integration across all parts of people's lives that policies like that ultimately seem to have not been successful. So in your view, is like housing integration the key? Or not the key, but the, like the big thing that other things will fail if they don't incorporate that? It's certainly it's certainly the most important. Um, it, it's it's not. It, I wouldn't want to say things like school integration will be total failures and workplace integrations will be total failures, but housing integration seems to be the key. There's just so many things that point to this that the fact of where you live, this fact of social geography, seems to have an overwhelming effect on our behavior and on our attitudes in a way that things like where we work and where we go to, where we go to school they just they just simply do not in many ways it's um housing housing seems to be the thing that 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 trumps all of them and and something i would say about that is when we look at these places where we are willing to integrate societies 
we're doing it with a very slim, thin slice of people. So some of the most diverse places you'll find are places like where I'm sitting now, which are elite universities around the country. Well, that's a very small group of people. So, you know, the the um, kids at Harvard who are probably all social liberals before they got here anyway, um, are, are exposed to the wonders of diversity while they're here. And you can, you can replicate that across a hundred other colleges that are working really hard with good intention to do this. But then the whole rest of the United States still goes back to their segregated neighborhoods, you know, every day after work. In fact, most of those kids at Harvard will graduate and then go live in segregated neighborhoods themselves afterwards. And so we're doing a very small thing to a very small portion of the population to t- when we think about diversity, we need to think about something larger. We need to think about how can we truly integrate our cities? How can we, su- be, we be successful in integrating where people live if we really want to think about diversity? But the reason education makes people more socially liberal, um, which I think is pretty clearly established now, that's not, or it's not primarily because either as conservatives would have it, universities have a liberal bias, which they probably do, or, as liberals would have it, that once you know more about the world, then you just happen to become liberal, because I don't see how having a chemical engineering degree and learning nothing about social science makes you more liberal. Yet it does. The mechanism is you have contact with and specifically live with a variety of demographic groups. That's the causal mechanism, right? Well, there, there certainly is evidence that if you're a person that lives um, with a uh, with somebody different than you, it can liberalize you in a lot of ways. So this is we see this in these in these university environments um, where there are natural experiments, if you will, where you have a white person that is assigned and is often random a non-white roommate mm. that they come out more liberal afterwards. But as your point about the chemical engineer explain uh, pointed to, it's not entirely clear why that white chemical engineer that doesn't have a non-white roommate and isn't learning about social justice in their classes, why they come out as more liberal. And it probably has something to do with a spillover effect where they meet that white person with a non-white roommate and it's now they know somebody that is more racially liberal because of who they're living with, and, and that's changing their attitudes. Um, and, and so, you know, largely it seems to be this kind of exposure, either indirectly or directly, to diversity and to liberal attitudes. That, that seems to make a difference. Of course, then we, we what the thing we have to deal with, though, is we say, well, even in a country, a rich country like the United States— most people are not four-year college graduates, especially, you know, in the early 20s. And so, um, and most of them that are don't go to these wonderfully diverse schools of the places that can afford to really try to become diverse. And so how much is that due to, to liberalize uh, a country to make it more racially tolerant? Well, a, a pretty small amount. Right. No, no, no. I'm just thinking about this more on the descriptive level. I am very, very skeptical. As someone who had a fancy education, <laughs> I am very sceptical on, on the ultimate moral value of those things to society as a large. I'm very sceptical as to the social premium. Um, I basically never mention that I'm an Oxford grad. Almost never. I think this might be the first time I've mentioned it on the podcast, because... <laughs> now everybody knows. Uh, yeah, my secret's out. But, like... I I think there's something actually really socially toxic in general, even if you had perfect equality of opportunity, which we don't, about, like, 
the ability of like 16 and 17 year olds to jump through some arbitrary hoops when their brains even aren't fully formed yet then determines their ability to access all of the elite spaces in society. There's something off there, even if you don't. You know what I mean? Even if you don't. Sorry to like shit on everything you do for for like. Um, <laughs> um, but there's something off about that, and yeah, that's not going to be the solution. And even something like say affirmative action. Like, look, I support affirmative action. That's fine, but that's only ever going to benefit a tiny substrata of African Americans. Um, yes. Like, and if you believe in like the moral logic of. Uh, let's not even say reparations, reparative policy, to who is that debt owed? Is it owed merely to that small percentage of black Americans who have the ability to attend an elite school but might be shut out because of racism? Or is it owed to all black Americans? Well, it's owed to all black Americans. It's, It's owed to black Americans who are like never going to have a fancy degree and are never going to do a specialized trade. But that doesn't mean that their lives haven't been damaged and made less than they might have been by the racism of our society. It's owed to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that the reason reparations um, is is perhaps something that um, that will ultimately only be a, a pipe dream, unfortunately, actually, is because it reaches so deeply into society. It's saying we're going to try to lift everybody up. And and that's different than the way countries like the United States, for example, have often, at least in recent history, have tried to deal with um, with things like racial equality because it's these elite institutions like places like Harvard that are, are sort of in the vanguard of racial equality. But Harvard has 1,600 undergraduates every year. And that's we can tiny. It is tiny, yeah, but that's that's how you become elite, right? right. You keep people out. And so <laughs> they have sixteen hundred undergraduates. And if they could increase the proportion African American from something I think like fifteen percent or so that it is now to forty percent, right. but that's not gonna change anything. Um, largely um, about the experience of most African-Americans, even a small sliver of African-Americans. We can make some indirect argument that that is going to lead to these people becoming leaders and going on and changing society and things like that. And there's some truth to that. And that's why the mission of a place like Harvard maybe, maybe works. But ultimately, the reason we, you know, the reason that stuff like that is easy to have happen, even though there's still fights about it, is because it touches such a small group of society, and it's a fight among elites about who gets access to elite elite places and things like that. It's much different than the something like the argument of about reparations that touches all aspects of society. It's saying that our government, the United States government, is going to transfer money to help all African Americans due to some collective wrong that happened before. That's something that makes people, I think. Think more uncomfortable because it's something that is not just a fight among elites about what happens at elite places. Um, it's something about everything that society's done in the past and affecting a whole society now. So, do you think that I have this feeling, and this is a sort of political ideological point rather than like a social science point, that there's something lacking in the way the left is arguing? For well, I mean, I think for one thing that the the framing of diversity as opposed to integration is wrong because um, we get criticised for essentially being bean counting box checkers, right? That we're arbitrarily insisting on a certain percentage of people be black. 
for the sake of it. And there's no... So the, the, the ultimate reducto ad absurdum is, look, we had a black president for eight years and the black unemployment rate was still horrible for all of that. It didn't do anything for lives on the ground. And the problem is there's a certain amount of truth to that, even though the, the conclusion they draw from that is, therefore, we just give up and don't do anything. Like, the conclusion is morally grotesque. But... Um, if our if our ideological stated goal is just you know representation for the sake of representation, then that's never going to inspire people, and the best it's ever going to be is defensive. You know, we don't like Donald Trump because he's a racist. Sure, that's fine, right? Like agreed, check mark. But then that's not going to make a governing coalition for the long run. In the long run, you have to give people something to vote for. And like, it seems to me like we're not. And if we talked about integration more broadly, yes, that's harder. Yes, it's more uncomfortable. But then you can at least say, you can start to construct arguments to the effect of, if we did it, this could be a better society for everyone for these reasons. And it seems like we're not right now. I, I wonder if you would agree with that analysis. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I'll say that people on the left aren't unique to this problem of saying that we once we believe something, we have trouble remembering what it's like not to believe something. Hmm. Uh, you know, people call that the curse of knowledge, for example, where hmm. once we have an idea, we can't imagine what it's like not to have that idea. And so people on the right have the same problem. But for many of us on the left, we've internalized the idea that diversity is a good thing. And we just believe it as, as truth now. Now, empirically, and probably morally, we're absolutely right. Diversity is a good thing, and we and we want to live in more diverse societies. But since we've internalized that idea, we've often forgotten what it's like to have to to, to have to justify that, to have to, um, to have to make that argument to people. We just say that if if somebody does not uh, believe in diversity in the same way we do that they um, that they're a racist and we're not going to argue you know we're not going to engage with them and things like that they might very well be a racist but it doesn't mean it's not important to understand um, the perspective they have and for us to tell them why this is an important thing you know that we aren't going to necessarily convince anybody that rate that that diversity is good um, just by saying it's just good because it is even if we believe that, we need to make the arguments for why a society needs to be truly integrated, um, why this will have benefits to us all, and why we need to be willing to pay the cost, because there is a cost to integration. Yeah. Why we need to be willing to pay the cost to integrate a society for the long-term benefit of everybody. There's um, a wonderful phrase, I just quoted this in a last podcast from John Stuart Mill, of living truth and dead dogma that once an idea has become settled and it's no longer really in these active day-to-day -day street fights, it takes on the quality of received wisdom. It becomes something stale, something um, like the various dogmas of the Catholic Church that are just sort of repeated with no understanding. And I said this in the case of Brexit, in that the value of European liberalism had become a dead dogma, and now it's in a fight that it can lose. It's becoming a living truth. And the problem I have well, not the problem, but when I look at the democratic field today, of the, like, two million people we have running for president, yeah, um, they're, they're really going out there to the left. They're really saying we have to energize voters who haven't been voting before and embrace radical ideas and so on. And great, great. 
Um, but it seems to me like the anti-racism stuff is still dead dogma. It's still, you will believe that this is the body and blood of Christ because I fucking told you it's the body and blood of Christ. You know? It's not a living truth. It's, Donald Trump is bad because he said not X, and X is good. It's that double negative. And there's not been a powerful, positive, moral case for continuing the great project of moral of, of integrating America. There's not. Um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, where I, I think that at various points in U.S. history that um, the, the racial past of the United States, the racial, the racial present to the time of the United States, uh, came very much to the fore. I mean, these were times like the Civil War and the aftermath and the 1960s with civil rights. And, and because those moments were so important and because people were paying real costs for diversity and paying real, real costs for equality, they had to really confront these arguments. They had to really confront why they believed in that. And so, you know, I think that, for example, a white liberal college student from the North in the 1960s that was willing to go down and put their body on the line for the cause of civil rights had to really ask themselves, is this something that I believe in? Mm. And, and really confront why it was they're willing to pay that cost. And for better or worse, in many ways, you know, we've gone over some of those demons, so maybe that's better, but for worse now, because we're confronting new ones, uh, that's not the place that many liberals, especially white liberals in the United States, find themselves now. You know, diversity is more of a rhetorical argument. It's something that um, is sort of this dead dogma. It's something that we've just internalized into us now, and we don't, and we don't have to pay the cost to really ask how are we going to make this argument. You know, I see this with my students all the time, my undergraduate students, who are some of these most brilliant people in the world. They have trouble actually defending the idea of diversity. They have trouble when it's questioned. They have trouble explaining why it's a good thing because they've just internalized that it's a good thing. In fact, if you even bring up asking them, to defend why diversity is a good thing, they find that offensive that you would ask. Right. Um, because it, it, because it's sort it, of like asking, why can't I kill your cat? Yes, exactly. It's just something that they've internalized as part of liberal dogma. And I ultimately believe that they're right in that dogma. But the question is, you know, is it something that that's not a way to advance public policy and it's not a, and it's not a way to, to get people on your side? I, I think what's interesting is to say this is one of the many examples where I think if we all survived Donald Trump, he might have actually made the world a better place, hmm. which is to say that in some ways I think he's forcing liberals to, to confront these questions because the, the cost people are paying to live in the kind of society we want is becoming greater. So, you know, these examples of things like like um, these these anti-immigration raids that may happen this weekend, if liberals have to watch that there's people that are putting their body on the lines because there's armed government agents coming and taking people away, that's when that's when you know paying the cost for an inclusive society becomes greater, and people are confronted with something that's not just theoretical anymore, but something that is actually um, that that has a real you know life and death and flesh and blood. Um, meaning for people, and they're going to have to they're going to have to confront that and ask if they really agree with it. Yeah, I hope so. And I will be out this weekend doing some flyering about. Um, so my wife works for immigration policy, and we're, yeah. we're going to be doing some volunteer stuff, giving out information in communities that might be victim to um, ICE raids about 
um, what legal services are available to you should that happen. And we actually live on Staten Island and we're going to do it here, not Mm. because it necessarily has the highest group of immigrants, Mm. but because the logic is if anyone's going to be bloody calling up ICE, it's going to be these people. Um, Staten Island, yeah. um, So I don't know. Um, I hope that's the case. And I hope... Do you remember that thing where Susan Sarandon said she won't vote for Hillary because Trump is more likely to bring the revolution? And I just threw up my hands. I was like, for fuck's sake, this is everything that's wrong with the left in America in a sentence. Um, maybe there's like some element of that that will be true. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I remember being frustrated by things like that at the time, too. Um, because, uh, you know, of course, I, I had to kind of hold my nose to vote for Hillary Clinton, and that's a whole different story. But I wasn't um, I, I certainly wasn't going to vote for Trump because I thought the revolution was going to happen after that. Um, but I think that there there's a lot of things that we're pointing to where Trump has made us kind of uh, grapple with our values as a country. And, of course, he's brought out a lot of our really ugly demons. Mm. But he, he in many ways, I think he has caused especially liberals to, to grapple with with their values and say what's important to them and i think um ultimately we assuming we survive and i really mean that it's not you know it's uh, our country is in a very dangerous place right now but ultimately i think we could come out as a better society for it Uh, from your from your lips to god's ears i mean (laughs) final question i feel like we would um be be letting the audience down in a sense in we've been saying all along um liberals or people on the left or whoever need to make not just the case against discrimination, but need to make the case for integration. I feel like we have to do that at the end of this, right? What is what is the practical and moral case for continuing to integrate America? Yeah, sure. Well, we can think of this from both a negative and a positive perspective. So let me, let me talk about it from the negative perspective first, which is just to talk about what we're avoiding. And in many ways, this is what my book points to, which is when societies are segregated, when they're diverse yet segregated, they do not function well. Hmm. And and in many ways, this is the United States now. There's a reason we don't have things like a functioning healthcare system, and the reason we have a welfare state that can't take care of people, and the reason we have things like infrastructure, we have bridges falling down, we have roads that are not, that you can barely drive down, is because in many ways we have a society where people are not willing to spend money on people that are not like them. And, and 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 social science has shown this over and over again that there's just these social inefficiencies that come with a society that is diverse yet segregated. And diversity, the Pandora's box on diversity is here. We're not going to put that away. The United States is not going to suddenly become non-diverse. And this is true of Western Europe as well. So if we want to be a well-functioning society, we need to end segregation. So that's the negative case. It's about overcoming what, what we're not, what we don't want to be. The positive case is to say, how can we then diversity? And they're absolutely there. And social science has shown this over and over again as well. You can take a group where you have a diverse group of decision makers or you have a homogenous group of decision makers and the diverse group will outperform it. You can show this theoretically using mathematical models. You can show it empirically looking at data that diversity always outperforms homogeneity. And this is the reason that places like universities, 
in companies, some of the best performing companies in the in the United States, places like you know Google, Apple, whatever you want to say, that they value diversity. It's not just liberal, you know, feel good sentiment. It's because they they see the benefits of that diversity. But it's not to say you know Google is not going to capture that diversity if it takes let's say all of its immigrant employees, which it has a lot of. And has them work in Los Angeles and all its um, non-immigrant employees and has them work in Palo Alto and they're never together. That's right. segregates. They won't be able to share these benefits of diversity. So they actually integrate those people. They allow them to exchange ideas. They allow them to share and gain the benefits of uh, diversity. That's the reason places like Harvard do the same thing is because that benefit of diversity comes from integration. So there's a there's a certainly the case that I call the negative case, which is we're not well off when we're a segregated society. In many ways, that's what we live in now. But the benefit, the counterfactual of what could we harness in a country like the United States if we allow ourselves to become truly integrated is, is there too. And when we can look at those two things together, I think the case for integration is very clear. Yeah. And what I like about the way you put that is it is it's that's not just an argument about care and welfare and support. I think these are all true things. You know, if there's if there's people suffering abroad who can be given economic opportunity and whatever, uh, I'm not going to say no cost to us, but at comparatively trivial cost to us, then that's a good thing. However, I don't think it I don't think the case for integration and um immigration and whatever should be made as like a charity case we need to do more for the 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 vulnerable although that's an element of it i think there's a case um where um so i recently spent a lot of time with machiavelli which weirdly but anyway and he has this chapter where he says um romans being liberal with their citizenship made that republic both free and powerful and he says it's really interesting he says people say there are good soldiers wherever you have gold or wherever there's this type of group of people. And he says, there's good soldiers wherever there are men and good laws. Mm, And, you know, take away the soldiers and the male pronoun. There's something something about America where, you know, at our best, when we have been very pro-immigration, when, you know, the, the inscription on the Statue of Liberty of give me your tired and huddled masses yearning to be free, which can be read as compassion and charity and maybe is to a part, but it's also realpolitik. It's also like other countries are coming and dumping their raw materials, their timber, their iron on their shore, because they don't have the skill or ability or will to turn that, that iron and timber into warships. And we're saying, oh shit, you don't want that? Oh, we'll have it then. You know, yeah, you, it, you. It, yeah, go it, ahead. The, you know, the United States has benefited from immigration over and over and over again. And in many ways, our national strength has been built on that. Um, you know, uh, you know, uh, Great Britain is in many ways the same way, you know, as it's benefited from from immigration and many ways it has now. You know, why is London so much better off than the rest of the the rest of the UK? Well, it's not because necessarily that the the English in, in London are inherently smarter than the English out in the, uh, you know, in the rest of the the rest of the countryside there. It's because the smartest people from the rest of the world have gone to have gone to London and have made this diverse, thriving place. And you know, the, the same thing is true in the United States. It's true across all sectors of society. You know, our agriculture sector, our manufacturing sector, 
our um, high information sector, everything has benefited from these raw materials, like you said, that we've brought in from the rest of the world. They've made us a stronger country, and they will in the future if we can manage to keep me in a place that people want to come to, which is a whole other question. Yeah, that's my case. Like The rest of the world is giving us their raw materials for free. And we already have, at our best, the machinery to turn that into soldiers and scientists and citizens. And that's what's let us rule the world, really. Um, Okay. Um, Sorry if I was idealistic at the end there, or cynical, (laughs) depending on how you want to read it. Um, We covered, like, a lot there. Are there any final points that you feel we neglected or anything else you want to mention? Uh, No, not necessarily. Okay, great. Um... The book is The Space Between Us, Social Geography and Politics, which I assume you can find on Amazon and all good booksellers. Anywhere else you'd like to direct listeners to follow you, a website, Twitter, anything like that? Sure, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at uh, Ryan D. Enos on Twitter. My website is ryandenos.com. Cool. Um, Professor, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. One quick note on the schedule is I'm going to be traveling for the next few weeks, so I intend to stick to a roughly one episode a week schedule, but I'm not going to really be able to commit to them being out on a certain day. I usually try and get them out on Sundays, and sometimes that spills over to Monday or even Tuesday. And I think going forward for the next at least two or three weeks, it might be even more raggedy than that. So so if an episode isn't out exactly on schedule, it doesn't mean I've given up on the whole project. We've got another interview coming. I'm going to do one solo episode, and then we should have a couple more interviews. So the lineup for the next month or so is pretty full. I just don't necessarily know when I'll have internet over the next few weeks. As always, if you want to support the podcast, there's a few ways you can do it. Sharing these episodes on social media is a great way to get it out there. All of the growth we've seen from around, well, zero to about 10,000 regular followers, all of that has been organic coming from just people sharing it. We don't do paid advertising at all. If you are able to support on a more monetary basis, even if it's just a dollar or two, we'd love to have it. We have a Patreon page. It's just patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. And we have a suggested donation of $2 an episode. So if the episode you just listened to was as valuable and enriching and invigorating, or as bitter and unpalatable as your morning cup of coffee, consider chipping in at an equivalent level. Or whatever is right for you. There's no set amount. So big thank you to everyone who's done that as well. We don't do any advertisements on this show. I think advertisements spoil the quality of podcasts. And we don't have any sponsors or anything like that. So all of the costs of this show are met by people, listeners, chipping in. Whatever seems right to them. So if you are able to do that... Yeah, please do so. That would be terrific. And as always, really big, genuine thank you to everyone who shares, everyone who um, forwards this episode to friends, and everyone who sponsors us on Patreon. 
you're making the show possible, and I'm really genuinely grateful. That's it for this week. I hope you'll join us again next week. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.